You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. Hello and welcome to the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Emily Hart and this week I'm joined by Maria Fitzgerald, a brilliant human rights journalist, writer and gender editor at outlet Cambio. We'll be talking about her new book, Los Nombres Que Olvidamos, The Names We Forgot. The book collects chronically undertold and even hidden stories of Colombia's everyday and all-too-normalised violence, but it also serves as a statement against depersonalised writing and against the myopic focus of the mainstream news agenda. It's a call for a better, more humanising way to narrate Colombia's conflict, and indeed conflicts, and to foreground women's bravery and action in the face of them. So we'll be talking about women in conflict, social justice and journalism via Colombia's armed groups, the Paro Nacional, illegal mining and more, as well as the female journalists who inspire us, from Svetlana Alexievich to Joan Didion. All that to come, but first, your news headlines for this week. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's www.columbiacalling.co or the bnb columbia tours website that's www.bnbcolombia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive colombian adventure so that's bnbcolombia.com and latin news Thank you for supporting our sponsors. More warnings have emerged in relation to the upcoming regional elections in Colombia. The Ombudsman has warned of 113 municipalities at extreme risk of violence due to the incidence of armed groups. It's 39% more than in 2019, and he is calling for increased security measures. This week, Claudia Ordonez, a candidate for the Hamundi Town Council, was murdered meaning that 117 social leaders have been murdered so far this year, according to NGO Interpaz. Meanwhile, a spate of four massacres in the last seven days has brought the count to 63 massacres perpetrated so far this year in Colombia. William Alvarez Dominguez, an official of the Ombudsman Office itself, was killed in a knife attack this week while on humanitarian mission to Cordoba. 
Meanwhile, in Choco, Jefer Gamboa Palacios, mayor of Nuki, has been forced to leave the municipality due to threats from the Clan del Golfo armed group, who were reportedly demanding kickbacks on contracts being carried out in the area. The public order situation has forced 13 governors to govern outside their municipalities in Colombia. The majority of these cases are from Nariño and Choco, but one more from Catatumbo has had to leave the country entirely. The government has proposed a plan to improve urban security which will involve both police and private security companies. It promises a large amount of spending on surveillance technology, including security cameras. President Gustavo Petro has also announced a new national reconciliation law. The law is to work hand-in-hand with the total peace law so that, as the president puts it, all those who have been involved in illegal acts and violence can have a path and a way of life in this nation. The law will include criminals and drug traffickers who meet certain conditions. Three major health providers have written to the country's health minister to warn that they are near collapse of services due to lack of funds. These health providers, who serve around 15 million people, say that they do not have enough state funding to cover basic plans and that government delays in paying off pandemic debts are causing issues in service provision. Meetings have been set up to avoid the collapse, but providers have warned they may pause services in September if nothing is done. And in other health news, warnings are being issued about a spike in cases of dengue fever. So far this year, there have been nearly 70,000 cases, which is the highest number in the last eight years. There have also been 44 deaths, 27 of which were of those under the age of 15. Those were your headlines, so let's dive in to this week's episode. So welcome, Maria, to Columbia Calling. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No, thank you, Emily, for the invitation. Firstly, congratulations on Los Nombres Que Olvidamos, The Names We Forgot, your new book. It is an extraordinary and crucial read. So how did the book come about? What inspired you to write it? Well, first, thank you so much for, for your words. I think it's um, it came from a necessity, some sort of statement against what we are used to understand for journalism here in Colombia. So mm. we usually have to move around the main agenda and the things that are relevant every single day on every journalists, um, you know, platform and everything on, on all over the media. And sometimes I do believe that's noisy, you know, like we are so full of noise all the time that sometimes we forget how there are some <laughs> stories that, in my opinion, are far more important and far more relevant because you know, there's entire communities dying over different reasons and we seem to have forgotten about them. So, you know, we are currently living in a different political era, but we have the exact same scandals we used to have with other governments. And now mm. when we were expecting some kind of different narrative, we are having to go through the exact same things. So, what I've tried to, to to do with the book was to bring to, to the table this 
other stories that I've been able to develop through through the years that I've been working as a journalist and try to explain that the, the things that I've gone through and the behind the scenes that that it's always there. And this is not an exercise just for talking about myself because I actually kind of hate that. But it's because <laughs> I do believe that sometimes when you come to I talk about those little details that you can only tell when you have lived these type of situations, then there's a greater impact on how you can understand the story. So this is some sort of, as I said, statement of what I think could mean some sort of sensibilization or like trying to put in more evident words what what sometimes a press note can't really tell because you have a certain space and, and a certain amount of words that you can use. And all of that brings some sort of loss for the story. And perhaps in the book, I was able to talk a little bit more about the things that you never get to talk about on the media. It's really interesting. It's a sort of declaration not just against the news agenda, but against the news style. Yeah, exactly. And I, I obviously encourage our listeners to read it because it is incredibly vivid and it is a shift away from a journalistic approach. You write about it um, in the introduction. I hope you yeah. won't mind my quite rough translation, but you say that the work is a commitment to emotions and to feelings, to understanding a sure. journalism that decides not to depersonalize itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is such an interesting, such an interesting idea. And you talk about the crisis of journalistic legitimacy and this yeah, being a possible exactly. solution. Well, I, I know this is a global uh, phenomenon, but when you see what happens here in Colombia, we are usually talking about the journalist and not the story. And we are also usually talking about certain agendas very specifically, but we don't really go and talk about the depth of many stories and when you came to face how all of this world works you come to realize that usually it is absolutely taken away from emotions and when you strip things from emotions you can empathize with them you can really understand the struggles that many of these people are having so you end up talking about things that are usually not that important and you can't really understand the situations they are going through. So when I decided to talk about feelings in my book, saying I was scared for walking in a forest full of um, mines and uh, I was I was actually very scared And I was very moved when this woman showed me the place where Harrison had decided to kill himself. And all of those things that you can only say in, in, in something like a book, those are the things that I think are most valuable, actually. Mm. And I wonder, so something I've wondered as a as a female writer, if, if sometimes these modes of journalistic writing can be not overly masculine, but overly macho, the negation of emotions and the insistence on bravery and hard fact and 
things that only logic and you know mathematical thinking can lead to sure um that that's something quite common and when you see like i i do i think it's quite funny because um when you say you are a journalist a human rights journalist you have like this imaginary of a, a very specific person that it's usually a man a big muscular man with uh yeah like you said a macho yeah right And uh, it's like this war figure, sort of, that has no feelings, that it's such a badass. And in reality, like, I don't believe that's truth at all. I've seen, like, if you if you see, the, for me, like, the real inspiration for, for being a journalist, it's um, Svetlana Alexievich, and, and she is a woman yeah. that has written from emotions. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite book. I'm I'm holding up a copy of Chernobyl Prayer, which is yeah. a slightly damaged worn copy because oh, yeah. um yeah, she is the absolute icon. Yeah, she uh, and if you see she reivindicated in in a way talking through emotions and and mm. being able to move her entire audience by being very honest about how war actually feels and that's something right. that it's quite real and, and i think I, i don't i i'm going to say it really badly but sometimes in a book svetlana alexievich said something like women never talk about the glory of war they talk about the everyday um situations and there's no glory on the everyday situations they don't talk about heroes they talk about death And that's mm. what I've tried to do from personal experience. And that's like the biggest bet on, on the book. Yeah, I mean, certainly my preferred mode of reading is this mix of almost memoir and journalism of the mode of, of Svetlana and of Joan Didion, kind of against sure. the... Have, have you read uh, Anthony Lloyd? No, I haven't. Please I'm do not. It's, it's exactly <laughs> what we're talking about. It's, okay. it's like, how exciting is this? How brave am I? Okay. And that's yeah. the mode of writing. Um, it's interesting what you say about, about the everyday, though, because um, The Forward, which is another beautiful piece of writing by Ana Bejarano Recaorte, talks about everyday violence. And she okay. says there's something very Colombian about the idea of everyday violence. Uh, normalized aggressions which hide the root of social problems that Colombian society has been slow to make visible and eradicate. And she refers to it as a beautiful and painful concept, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, and these violences are every day in that they are so common, but they're also hidden. Um, yeah. And I, and I do believe they're hidden because we don't talk about them enough. Because when you, when you watch the media, And you see how it is distributed. Usually, like on the first pages, it's the most recent political scandal, usually. And uh, we have days and days and days and days and days talking mainly about Nicolas Petro, Gustavo Petro, and whatever right. it's, it's on that moment. And we usually tend to forget those other realities that are still present that are extremely important and we don't really talk about them. And when you go to any media and you see how it is distributed, usually the 
human rights section or the gender section or the, I don't know, climate change section are way down on on, yeah. on the portal. And that's quite, quite awful in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. The institutions of power are always given privilege in the news agenda. Um, lots of capital letters, lots of acronyms. Um, but as you say, for some reason, these sections like gender, like climate change, human rights, um, food, health, uh, they're always siloed and you kind of flick to page 30 um, and you get a page of it if you're lucky. Um, Exactly. And so the stories you've collected in this book range so broadly between young people who lost their vision in state state violence during the protests uh, through to suicide in indigenous communities. It's such a a kind of airy in, in some way, like there's a sense of real space and scope in this book. But how did you select which stories to tell? I went with, with emotion. <laughs> like I, uh, I've, I've seen so, so many things, so many things on, on my years working as a journalist. Hmm. And I realized that there were stories that m- gave me bigger, uh, like scars i don't know if right. that's yeah and i do remember for example the the um, social i don't know how to say that in english like el estallido social which were the protest we lived yeah, here protest. in colombia during 2021 that the that is like a part of Colombian history that has become like the new falsos positivos or the new um, false positives, I think that's how you say it. Um, Because it's like this story being disputed constantly. Like some people say it was like some sort of guerrilla movement. Other people says it was a legitimate protest I'm on the side of being a legitimate protest because I was on the streets. I, I I went there. I ran from the police. I saw how they murdered people. I I was there. I saw everything, and I I got beaten up. <laughs> I got chased, and those are the things that when you don't say on like when you don't say I lived there, that I was there. I, I I faced that. Then it's quite harsh for them to believe to you because if if they're constantly going against the things that you know that happened, they are probably going to tell you you weren't there. You don't know what you're talking about. You saw it on screens or through the media or like you know some sort of things that are not the entire reality. And I do believe. That's something that I've tried to do with that um, uh, episode specifically, but also because that was, I think, one of the things that gave me some sort of big scar all over me for being there exactly and for for seeing how they they did everything, all the things they did, and nothing, nothing really happened. And right now, we are facing the consequences of all of that. 
there's something that I I'm I've been working recently for trying to to um, communicate, but I don't know how to do it just yet. And it is that a big part of the people that used to go out to protest are committing suicide as well because they got really bad for all the things they saw and the the things they had to face through those days. And when you see like the consequences of all the things that meant uh, those protests, then you realize that's a big story, but perhaps it's also like a great way to create this sort of resume of the everyday violences we face here in Colombia that are quite common and that we don't re that we have come to make natural for for us to live here to face these violences from the police from the institutions from uh, the armed actors from all of these people that are constantly giving us a lot of violence and we have to live with that it's really interesting this link between experience that you've lived in your own skin and having this this scar but also this very nuanced sense of the factors and consequences either side of an event um and i think this book is is so nuanced in that way um and you talk about breaking down the victim and perpetrator dichotomy and looking at indirect victims you know the the very subtle ways that violence pervades a society rather than, you know, just the individuals who might be allowed into a transitional justice process or very particular direct consequences of, of conflict. Um, the, the chapter on the Embera communities, um, which is in part about suicide, is such a concentration of different factors. You know, within one paragraph... You're talking about historical violence, landmines, FARC paramilitaries, mining, pollution, ecology, nutrition. It's sort yeah. of everything at once and you get this real sense of interconnectedness. Because that's what happens here in Colombia. We, we don't have one, one problem. We have way too many. <laughs> we have way too many and that's, that's what happens with us. You know, like sometimes I do believe that Colombia has a great curse and it's the richness of their of, of foreign lands, like we have been exploited constantly and for many many reasons, and that has brought so many problems for us, but especially for our most remote communities, such as the Embera. When when I went there, I spent three days through a river, and it was, as I said in the book. The most amazing and surreal experience that experience that I have ever lived in my entire life, because I was surrounded by the most perfect nature that I have seen in my entire life. It was absolutely beautiful, absolutely astonishing. But at the same time, I knew there were there there was a lot of violence being lived there in 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 the present tense, like. I was there when the paramilitary patrols came down the river and they went through, like, right next to us. I had to sign an agree agreement uh, with the the organization that took me there 
that if I got kidnapped, they, they couldn't do anything. And that was like knowing that you were going to see the most beautiful region that I have seen in my entire life, but also knowing that there was violence wherever you were able to, to be. And that that is such an incredible contrast because that's like the entire resume of what Colombia is. It's an extremely beautiful country with extremely amazing people that have survived so many things. But we are... We, we just go from problem to problem to, you know, situation after situation. And as you say, it's like some sort of chain, like this chain that it, it works perfectly for causing the things that the people have to go through and this mm. by constant violence. I really hope that this book can reach uh, an international audience because I think it does so much to counter this myth of, of post-conflict in Colombia you know, the much celebrated and and for good reason, peace accords with the FARC in 2016. Um, but violence is still every day and has all of these, yeah. you know, myriad manifestations. Um, and your source, Rosa, in one in one essay talks about the hope that, that their community also felt when the FARC left. Um, and there were, she says, maybe a few months of tranquility Um but now the ones we least wanted have arrived because the paramilitaries are always worse. Yeah. And that's something that I have seen on, on so many places. Like I, for, for the last chronicle of the book, I talk about an experience in Caquetá, in a place that is called Cartagena del Cheira. I went there because I was uh, working with the mother of uh, three young people that were taken by the FARC guerrilla for, for, yeah, they were recruited. And she lost all of them, all of her, her children got lost with the guerrilla. And she used to tell me that they hated the FARC guerrilla, but perhaps the brief time where the paramilitary were there was far worse, far worse. Like she told me things about people uh, being chained on a post and they were left there for many days uh, under the sunlight with animals and then they saw their corpses being eaten by birds and you know that that sort of things that sort of horror that only it's seen when the when the paramilitary come here when you see what the paramilitary had done on many, many regions, you came to understand Rosa without saying that the guerrilla don't do things because they, they, they do. They are course, yeah. quite able too. But when you see the difference on, on what the paramilitary have done, you come to realize that perhaps they do are far more cruel than, than the guerrilla. And that's something quite terrifying when you see what the guerrilla have done throughout the history of Colombia. Yeah, I mean, it's a history of such extremes. And in terms of putting these stories together, um, because they, they do create a very, a very cohesive texture, how, how did you work to, to weave them together around a, a kind of central thesis? Well, I, I do think that comes from like two premises that I have uh, through my work. One, that I always work with human rights, like that's my 
my main agenda and I work with human rights and that's what I do. And second, I work with women. I work to to emphasize on women and I do believe women are the real agents of change in any society. For me, that's a reality and that's where I try to focus all, all my work. Perhaps there's just one chronicle that doesn't really revolve around precisely women, which is uh, one where I talk about the transition from coca to um, illegal mining, which is something that I, we're currently living here in Colombia. But the, uh, the all four, the other four chronicles are about women and surrounding women and the things that we are are doing. Because I do, for what I have seen in my work and to every region that I have reached, uh, I have always seen women leading change. And I have always seen women being the ones that come to face the the armed group or, or are the ones that cry for their children going to war. Women are... I, I do believe women are the main victims of war here in Colombia and in every every single war around the world. And certainly there are emblematic cases, again, and invisible ones. And I, I think some of the cases in this book really bring to light those invisible ones because we often have um, the mothers of the disappeared, a kind of the classic example in, in countries across this region, um, where it's mothers and grandmothers who are doing the searching um, but there's a million other ways that that, that that manifests. I think it's really interesting that these are stories that you worked on as a journalist and then that you've returned to in the process of writing this book. So I'm interested in this process of returning um, to the stories. Were you surprised by how different you felt about any of them or what you found in them when you were revisiting them? Sure, yeah. When you are writing for the media or you have to make this sort of exercise of depersonalization, I think, <laughs> like trying not to feel, trying to go through the facts and not, uh, you know, like working too much on how you felt and how the things that you saw might have affected you. And that's something that is usually uh, something that you have to do really fast too. And when I had the chance to come back to these stories, I came to to realize how how deep I really felt everything that I saw. Like, and I and I and I think the main um, example of this is what happened with the Meta community. Because when I went there, I was and uh, when uh, when uh, the mother of this kid that that decided to commit suicide took me to the place to the exact place where he had he had committed suicide suicide he like like i was carrying my cell phone and i was recording everything and i followed her without even realizing at which point we were like going so deep into the jungle when I realized that I was in there and when I realized what she was actually trying to show to me, um, which was the place where the kid committed suicide, I just kept on recording. Like 
it was like some sort of instinct. And I didn't realize how how incredible that moment had been and not incredible like in a good way but in, in I can't believe this actually happened and the way in which she took the piece of uh, fabric that he had used to to commit suicide and how she at the end she threw it on the floor with like this sort of demeanor like like you know like this strange attitude that I can quite uh Precisely in one word, but it was like this mixture of sadness and rage and like some sort of the, uh, of um, resignation, like uh, resignation, resignation, yeah. yeah. And uh, she just threw it on the ground and then she left, and I was speechless wow. the entire yeah. time because I, I didn't. <laughs> I couldn't believe that I had just saw that and that I had just recorded all of that, that I had lived that, that I was there in a place far away from my home, living in, you know, it it was like a moment with so many incredible things. And when I had to revisit the recordings and everything that I saw at that point, I was like speechless. I, I I cried actually. I said like this this was absolutely breathtaking when I saw the recording once again. Yeah. And and that's kind of the thing, you know, like you may forget forget some details about the things that happened, you may forget some some things, you may even try to hide what you felt, but you know that's the thing with feelings, you can't really bury them forever and at some yeah. point they're going to come through and that's why I decided to like revisit all of this story all of this story because I knew there was something quite important for me to say about those those things that I have decided not to 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 say yeah to to tell on their on their entire complexity Right, yeah, and to reposition yourself, not just as a person, but as a a cipher or a vessel for the reader themselves, who is not necessarily from the Embera community, who might feel the way that you felt in that moment and might find more connection to the story through feeling what you were feeling. Sure, and that's something quite quite amazing about this sort of uh, narration and it's and that's that's what the entire book it's about there's universality on feelings and that's how we came to understand each other like we all know how we feel when we are sad and we all know how we feel when we are angry and we all know right yeah we all know happiness unless we are some sort of i don't know psychopath but i i do believe they <laughs> also have feelings but you know we all are capable of understanding feelings. Perhaps we don't know how the Imbera community moves through the river. Perhaps we weren't capable of going out on the streets during the estallido social, during the protests. Mm. Perhaps we, we weren't there, but we do know how how we feel and we do know how feelings feel. And that's right. something quite powerful. Yeah, it's almost visceral. It's certainly vital. 
Um, and something else yeah. stylistically, I feel like comes through a lot in in the book is that it's not just that you're very present. It's that the the quotes, the amount of voice that your sources get, are also much more substantial than we are sometimes allowed journalistically. Um, when you quote a person in a in a short news article, you maybe get a couple of lines, right? Like a couple of sentences. Yeah. Um, and in the book, there's really, there's a lot of the, of the voice of the people that you're speaking to. Yeah, exactly. Because that's, that's something that usually happens also in journalism. And it's that we have created like this sort of mold of what a victim looks like and how they talk and how they feel and the things they say. And, you know, we have come to create like this, some sort of, faceless creature that we believe it's a victim and i i think it's quite important for us to to understand that uh there's a necessity for us to comprehend that there's a lot of richness and particular experiences on everything that we have come through as a nation so when you come uh, and bring a voice to the people that are actually going through these situations and you actually let them talk, I do believe that's something that we have to do much more and that it's quite... um, And it's not that present on the media. So I do believe these sort of spaces can bring that advantage to the people that that want to be portrayed on these books. Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a pressure on victims and on the way we speak about victims for them to be innocent victims. And it's a phrase I just, it just makes my blood boil when you read it, innocent victim of X or Y crime. And you think a person doesn't have to be innocent to be a victim. You know, I've spoken to victims who are like really weird or victims who are assholes or victims who are also perpetrators. Um, And to demand that they are blank characterless sort of almost childlike innocence is to dehumanize them in a different way right sure and also because i think there there are actually um there's a chronicle here in the book that talks about human trafficking here in colombia in cucuta uh which Mm -hmm. is a city on the frontier with venezuela and it's that's that's the crime that i do believe explains much easily how there's no difference many times between victim and the person perpetrating the the crime because usually when you are a victim of trafficking it's quite common that you come to become a trafficker yourself only because you have to survive wow and because of your your uh, yeah, the people that got you there, the people that are trafficking with you, make you actually uh, start to recruit other women and other people for mm, for yeah. the business. When you have that in mind, and when you realize that there's no such uh, dichotomy between victim and the one that perpetrates the crime, then that's when you come to realize this is a far more, um, you know, like, relative line and you can really be that uh, innocent on trying to bring names to things that can't actually be named that easily Mm -hmm. and that dualism 
doesn't apply in the Colombian context any more than it does anywhere else. I mean, it's it's yeah. dysfunctional, particularly in this context. Um, so in terms of everyday violence in Colombia, during your career, have you seen it evolve or, or change? Or do you think it's a kind of constant, silent parallel to the stories that we are seeing? I, I do believe there has been some sort of change on the perhaps the the actors involved and some some of the people that used to be considered the biggest perpetrators have become the biggest victims, which are like the the people who signed the agreement of peace. Right, yeah. Because now they're being murdered almost every month or every day. It's it's quite terrible what has happened to them. And uh I do believe there's been some sort of change on how we are seeing the violence is being committed. But, you know, in the end, everything seems to be just a big uh, cycle that just repeats mm. every mm. every time. And I can say it also because when I went to talk with the Embedas and when I talked to them and when I came back, I talked with these um psychologist that actually works with uh, Colombian victims, uh, with Colombian armed conflict victims. And he told me it, it is impossible that we are going to reach uh, 2030 and we are still going to be talking about the suicides on indigenous communities because nothing is going to change. And we have been talking about this exact same phenomenon for many decades and we need to do something for it to change however i think at the beginning of this year there was another wave of indigenous suicides on different communities and it is like this sort of as i said some sort of cycle that just goes on and on and on and when you actually come to see the reasons most of the reasons are the exact same, and that's because the structural structural violence keeps on coming and keeps on being the same on every government. And when you see how these people lived, it's the exam, exact same way how they used to live some years ago when they started committing suicides. And that's something that just keeps on happening and no one seems to really care about what is going on. So how then do we get these everyday violence stories, these stories that are being ignored, these cycles that aren't being broken, to, to float up into the main narrative and kind of fight for space amid these, these political scandals that we've been talking about, Odebrecht, Nicolas Petro, the, the institutional, the men in suits, the big money. How do we move those aside and start trying to inject these stories into the, the main national narrative? Well, I do believe that there's only one thing we can do, and it's actually to read and to try to know more about these stories, because I know I'm not the only journalist trying to to bring a light over these sort of topics. Actually, there are many great journalists doing the exact same exercise on different uh, places and on different media. On, I know uh, for that journey, actually, I went with two journalists from El Espectador, which is another 
the media here in Colombia. And um, I know they have like this sort of focus on trying to bring these stories. But the thing is that if people don't read it, then we are not encouraged to keep on working on this sort of story. So I do believe the great improvement that we could do is try to reach for those those type of stories and trying to make the the media talk about this kind of situation as, and not just about like yeah the, the the institutions the media is trying to make us work with absolutely yeah and the the importance of making space in your day and I think in your wallet also um, for yeah. high quality long form writing yeah exactly. um is is our responsibility as readers as well as the responsibility of, of government and media so to end on maybe a more hopeful note um because i do think this mode of writing is is hopeful in its rehumanization of these stories um where do you find hope when you're writing stories that are that are this difficult because they if they're hard to read i know they're hard to write yeah well I know I'm going to be the most cliche person in the entire world. I love a cliche. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like on the people. Like when you when you go and see the leaders that are there. When you go and talk with these amazing women that are capable of keep on fighting despite all the things they have had to face, then you realize that what you're doing is just like this sort of uh, platform for them to be known like I I do this because I want more people to know about Rosa and more people to know about Juanita and I want more people to know about all of these amazing women that I have met and men too I'm sorry but I talk only about women but men too that are there that are fighting for their territories that are fighting for for their lives that are fighting for their communities that want to be heard and that want to be listened by the government and these people that are extremely brave that I believe are the actual agents of change and if we come to them and if we try to support them because what I do is just like a small part of what could be done for them like you know I do believe I I don't I don't actually believe in in the government, I do believe on self-government and I do believe on the power of people working together. And I do believe if we all came around these, these women and men and if we all were brave enough to support them and to support us, then we will have a completely different reality than the one that we are facing here and on the entire world. I completely agree. Um with permission, I will be sharing um, a fragmento, an extract from the book, and send it to subscribers. But thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that's a great place to end. A call to bravery for all of us. I think that's really inspiring. So thank you so much. No, thank you so much. And I really hope many people can actually get to know these stories because these people actually need to be heard. Absolutely true. Thanks so much, Maria. Bye. Thank you, thank you Emily. Bye. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, 
provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolombia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolombia.com and latinnews.com. Com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.